Hi everyone and welcome to Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. I'm Nicolette and we are so glad to have you with us joining our church community. Today, Pastor Char Broderson will remind us that we are called as we are, where we are, to be who we are as we represent Jesus in his healing water to those around us. He'll be continuing through this series in the book of John in chapter 7. John's gospel is the story of the eternal God who became flesh. Anyone who believes in Jesus is promised that his spirit will come to live within them. And as they're filled, God desires that we dispense this living, healing water to the world around us. So as you all know, we're studying the Gospel of John here this morning, and we are doing so with this theme, life in the name of Jesus, life in his name. Now John has given us the purpose of writing this Gospel, and that purpose statement is found in John chapter 20. John writes, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John makes it clear that this is not an exhaustive biography of the life and works and words of Jesus, but he has recorded and handpicked certain stories, sayings, and signs in order that the reader might believe certain things about Jesus, that we might believe that Jesus is God's one and only anointed King and Savior, and that we might believe that he is the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. And so we've been saying this, but each week we have this opportunity as we gather around this gospel, as we seek to learn and to grow in following Jesus, we have this opportunity to ask ourselves, am I experiencing life in the name of Jesus? Can I commend this life to others? Could I say to someone else, come to Jesus and drink? and you will be filled. Come to Jesus, and you will experience actually living water bubbling up in you and overflowing. So we have that week, or excuse me, we have that opportunity weekly to ask ourselves, almost kind of to take our spiritual pulse. Where am I with Jesus? Am I following closely? As we talked about a couple weeks ago, am I pressing into him even with my doubts and my questions, do I have life in his name? Now, the section that we're looking at this morning is a really, really interesting part of the Gospel of John. And as I was studying it, I kept thinking about this whole section is really centered around the presence of God in the midst of his people being in proximity to God and the life that is in him, the life that is through him. This whole section centers around the presence of God in the midst of his people and the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, this idea of God's presence in the midst of his people is a powerful and reoccurring theme through Scripture, beginning in you know, the, the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, where we're told God walked in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had this 
presence of God in the midst of them. They would walk with God and they would talk with God. Now, if we know the story of Scripture, we know that that was lost through Adam and Eve's disobedience to God. And the whole story of the Bible is about God pursuing humans, about God offering his presence to human in order to humans in order to bring us back into his life-giving presence. And so the Bible actually ends with these words, the dwelling place of God is with humans. He shall be their God and they shall be his people. So really, almost the bookends of the Bible are all about God's desire to live in the midst of his people. Now, the way that God did this throughout the story of Scripture because of human sin and because of God's holiness is God lived in a tent or a temple, right? But see, the tabernacle or the temple is really all about presence. In ancient times, temples were not just places of worship and sacrifice. They were that, there were many other parts, actually, about the temple. It was a you know, place of social gatherings. It was a place of feasting. But more specifically, a temple was where human and the divine met together. It was where earth and heaven intersected. Temple or tabernacle was a place of divine presence. Now, there were three main feasts that the Jews would celebrate, and they would make pilgrimage to celebrate at Jerusalem. They were the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, and then as we're looking at, the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles commemorated the 40 years that Israel spent in the wilderness in tents, booths, some translations say, or tabernacles. Camping with God in the wilderness. Now, Jews from all around the world would make their way to Jerusalem where Yahweh's temple was. And there they would build these temporary dwellings made out of whatever they could find. So for eight days, they would camp out in these you know, family-made dwellings all throughout Jerusalem celebrating and remembering the God who had promised to dwell in their midst and be their God. They would particularly call to remembrance God's provision. And so during this feast, there were all sorts of prayers and uh, these, what's called a water libation, right? These pouring out of water, gathering water from this pool and that pool, pouring out water and prayers for God's provision of rain, for the land. So there would be a remembering of water that came from the rock in the wilderness. When we were in the dry and arid wilderness, God provided life for us. They would also remember the manna that was given there in the wilderness, God's provision. But they would also be praying for the hastening of the resurrection of the dead. Not just life and provision now, but cosmic life. They would be praying for the ultimate healing and restoration of the world. Now, Feast of Tabernacles was like, you know, a yearly national camping trip in Jerusalem. What a cool experience, right? 
All kind, uh, this is from N.T. Wright. He says, all kinds of lavish celebrations took place involving lighting of lamps, dancing by torchlight, processions that ended on the eighth day with the pouring out of water and wine in the temple and a march of priests and people all around the altar carrying citrus fruits and waving palm branches. He goes on to say, the worshipers at the festival of booths or tabernacles Tabernacles looked expectantly to a future time when life-giving water would flow from the temple and invigorate the land, just like water flowed from the ancestors for, from the rock in the wilderness. So I just want to like set the scene for us because all of this, this picture and this expectancy would be in the hearts and the thoughts of the people as they gathered for this feast of tabernacles. And can I just say this? Man, Jewish people just know how to party, don't they? Goodness, we could learn a thing or two from them. Now, we've got this interesting thing that happens. John tells us it's the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, since it's the time of the feast... And the Jews from all over the world would be present. Jesus' brothers see this as a great opportunity for Jesus to make himself known on a national level. Now, he had already been to Jerusalem. We read last time about his following in Galilee. And so maybe this is a time for Jesus to regain some followers, you know, some new followers and maybe regain back some of the followers that he lost because of his, you know, unpopular eat my flesh, drink my blood sermon uh, that we read a few weeks ago. So Jesus' brothers challenge him, make yourself known to the world. And it's hard, I think, to know exactly how they feel about him considering their comments. They know that he is a wonder worker, but John tells us that they say this because they actually don't believe in him. They say to him, make yourself known, promote yourself. If you are who you say you are and do what you can do, then go to the capital. Go to where the people are and make yourself known. Now, there's this weird thing going on where Jesus is like, no, I'm not going to go. I'm not like you. You know, your time is any time. My time is very specific. And Jesus, I'm not going up. And then Jesus goes up to the feast. And people are like, oh, Jesus is a liar. Well, he does say I'm not going up at this time. So, you know, there's like this little caveat, a little loophole. I don't know. We're not going to get into that. The interesting thing, I think, in this passage is that Jesus highlights that his way is not the way of the world. Jesus is operating in the Father's timing and according to the Father's will. He says, your time is always now. My time is very, very specific, and it is ordered by the Father. And the Father's will involves Jesus' sacrificial death, not at the Feast of Tabernacles, but at the Feast of Passover. Now, this is important for us to understand because Jesus then turns around and does go up to the feast, but in secret, which is very different from the way he goes up to the Feast of Passover. Now, Jesus' brothers challenged him to show himself to the world, and of course... As always, they get much more than they bargained for with Jesus. Because on the last, the final day of 
the feast, when the priests are pouring out the water and the wine, Jesus will stand there before all the crowds and he will declare himself to be the one that tabernacle and temple have always pointed to and preparing for all along, that he is the source of God's healing power and presence in the world. I do not think that this is what Jesus' brothers expected him to do. Like, you get this feeling from the Gospels. Like, they kind of push him, challenge him, and then Jesus just goes, like, way harder than they expected. Like, oh, goodness. Like, we should have known, right, what he was going to do. Now, there's all sorts of stuff going on in this chapter, Chapter 7 has multiple discussions, and before we go any further, I just want to get a caveat about this section. There are many questions and opinions being put forward about Jesus in this passage. We heard the people, how they're radically divided in their views about Jesus, and we do not have time this morning to go into all the nuances of this. And I simply want to try to thread the needle on this subject of God's presence because I believe that this is the overarching theme of this section. So it says that the Jews are expecting Jesus at the feast, but because he lingers a bit, the whole city is kind of bubbling over in conversation about him with all sorts of questions and opinions about him. Here are just a few. Where is he? Some said, he is a good man. Others, no, He deceives the people. But John adds, no one is talking about this out loud. Everybody's doing this in secret. It's kind of like the scuttlebutt, the gossip going around at the festival. Now we're told halfway through the feast, Jesus goes up to the temple. And he begins teaching the crowds. And now there's more questions. Where did this man get such learning without having been taught? And then as he teaches, there's some people who say, you're demon-possessed. Some ask, isn't this the man that they're trying to kill? Or another one, have the authorities really concluded that this is the Messiah? You get the feeling that this festival's a bit nuts, don't you? Like all of these celebrations going on, all of these different opinions, I mean, this is wild stuff that is going on at the Feast of Tabernacles. And as I read through this chapter, it kind of feels all over the place. And I'm feeling that just with people's questions and responses to Jesus. Now, Jesus will talk about where he gets his teaching from and why they don't get him, why they don't understand. He'll talk again about their misapplication of Sabbath law and their blindness in trying to kill him over it. He talks about the authority that he has from the Father and that they don't understand his teaching, they don't understand where he comes from or where he's going because they don't understand his source, which is the Father. Now, all of this is rich, and it is worth deeper personal study, but I want to focus on the climax of this whole scene. So all of this is going on, the different opinions about Jesus. He's a good man. Have the Religious leaders concluded that this is the Messiah. Oh, he's demon-possessed. All of this is going on. And I believe that this mixed crowd evokes Jesus to stand up on the last day of the feast and offer himself to the people of Israel as the true source and giver of living water. I want to read it one more time. Well, actually, probably read it a few more times. 
But it says, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Now John comments, by this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Now, the question is, what does Jesus' offer have to do with what Jesus is teaching and the Feast of Tabernacles? What, What is all this? Well, Jesus actually gives us a hint. He says, as the Scripture has said. Well, what Scripture is he talking about? Ezekiel the prophet, while living in exile in Babylon, had a vision of an end-of-days temple. And this temple would be so much more than the temple truly ever was. This temple would be as big as Jerusalem. And this temple was not just a place that people came to meet God at, but this is actually a place where God would dispense his presence from. We read that healing waters would flow from this temple and would heal everything and everyone that the water touched. Now, I want to read this lengthy passage out of Ezekiel 47, because why not, right? Who doesn't want to read a major prophet on a Sunday morning? Um, And if you want to follow along, that's great. I think we're verses 1 through 12. But it says, The man brought me to the entrance of the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me around the outside to the outer gate facing east, and the water was trickling from the south side. Now as the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits and then led me through water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to the waist. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. And he asked me, son of man, what do you see? Or excuse me, son of man, do you see this? And then he led me back to the bank of the river When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into Arabah, where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because of this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. Now listen to this line. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore from En Gedi to En 
There will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of so many kinds, like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. But the swamps and marshes will not be fresh, for they will be left for salt. Now, verse 12, fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the rivers. Listen to this. Does this sound familiar to anybody? Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food, filling, and their leaves for healing. Now, I don't know what your eschatology is. Like, if you are a heart, like, no. Second temple, millennial reign physical temple there, sacrifices being made. Can we just suspend all of that for a moment and just hear this vision? The scripture foretold a time when life and healing would flow like a mighty overflowing river from the presence of God to the ends of the earth and bring healing to everyone and everything. Now, the interesting thing is, if you know your Bible, this was not the normal case with the temple. Quite the opposite, in fact. How many stories do we know of people coming into God's presence unprepared? They have not done proper cleansing, proper preparation. What happens to them? Do they live? No, they do not live. There's clearly a time in Israel's history where only very specific people can approach the presence of God. And to do so, you had to go through all sorts of cleansing rituals and rites in order to come into temple, in order to come into God's presence. You could not bring uncleanness into God's sacred space. But what this passage is showing is the temple reversed. Rather than the sacred place being defiled by uncleanness and holiness that touches it, the sacred space of God is on the move like a mighty river bringing life, healing, and goodness to everything it touches. Now, it is fascinating when we note that this is the exact thing that is happening in Jesus' life and ministry. See, in normal, everyday Jewish custom and daily life, if you touch an unclean person with disease or an open wound or whatever uncleanness that might be, you were considered unclean. There, were, there was transference that would happen. If you touched a dead body, you were made unclean, but not so with Jesus. He touches the sick and they are made whole. He touches the disabled and now they are able He touches the dead body and it is raised to life. How is this possible? Because it's possible because as John has told us in the beginning, Jesus himself is the incarnated Lord of creation. He is the God of presence who walks in the garden with Adam and Eve. 
He is the enfleshed God who tabernacled with Israel in the wilderness. He is the same God who put his holy presence in the temple at Jerusalem. He is the God who, as John said in the beginning of this gospel, became flesh and made his dwelling or tabernacle among us. And we have seen his glory the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is Ezekiel's temple, the reverse temple, that whoever he touches, he claims, I can fill you up. Whoever he touches, he can raise to life. He can bring full healing to them. And this is Jesus' claim as he stands in the temple at the Feast of Tabernacles on that last day as water and wine is poured out. He is claiming that he is the one, the true temple, the place where people meet with the life-giving presence of God. Jesus is the one who gives this life-giving, life-restoring, soul-satisfying water. Now, John says that this is really about the promise of the Holy Spirit that would come after Jesus was glorified, which is a reference, as we've been saying, to Jesus' crucifixion, his death, resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of God the Father. So let's just pause for a moment because we have now the first application of this text. If you are thirsty, if you have not found anything in this world that will satisfy you, if you want deep soul satisfaction, come and drink. Come to Jesus and drink, and he will give you this life-giving water. Come, clean yourself. Wash and be made whole, be healed in Jesus' life-restoring water. Come and drink and be satisfied. All you need is want. Now, of course, the reason that we are spiritually thirsty is because we were made for fellowship with God. We've been talking about this all throughout John's gospel. We were made to be in relationship with him. I love the way that C.S. Lewis puts this, right? God created human beings to run on him as a car runs on fuel. He is the fuel your soul needs to live on. Now, how does Jesus fit into all this? How, how is Jesus able to give us this life-satisfying water? How is Jesus able to give us the Spirit, well, this is Jesus' whole claim that he is the one, the very anointed one from the Father who is able to give us the very presence of God, God's life-giving spirit living within us. Now, as we said, John has already said that Jesus was speaking about the spirit here, but at that moment, the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, do you remember months ago, we were talking about the story of the woman at the well. And we were talking, or we were even going further back to Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. There's this idea when Jesus says that just as Moses lifted up 
the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. John uses this term lifted up, or Jesus rather uses this term lifted up in John's gospel. He uses it with double meaning. The term refers both to exaltation, glorification, but also Jesus is being hoisted up on the cross. Now think about this for a moment. Jesus keeps talking about this lifting up of the Son of Man, this glorification of the Son of Man. And remember that it's there on the cross, as Jesus is hoisted up, that he screams out, I thirst. The one who says to the woman at the well, I can give you this living water if you're thirsty. The one who cries out to the crowds on the Feast of Tabernacles that great and final day, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink as he is hoisted up in his moment of being glorified, screams from the cross, I thirst. There on the cross, Jesus experiences the human soul's desperate thirst for living water. He is experiencing a draining, an emptying of his life so that we can be filled, so that we can live. Paul the Apostle, he puts it this way, Jesus became sin for us that we might become God's righteousness in him. Now, there's one more thing that John says right here in this little passage about Jesus crying out, I thirst, that I think is so interesting. And interesting doesn't even cover it. It's just powerful and beautiful. But as Jesus screams out, I thirst, it says that he receives a drink of vinegar. And then he says, it is finished. Now we know this word, to telestai, paid in full, complete, done. And it says, with that, he bowed his head and he gave up the spirit. Now, some of your translations say he gave up his spirit. It actually is not how it reads in the original language. I believe John is purposely highlighting that it is there in this moment as Jesus cries out that he is thirsty, that he releases then the spirit of God so that the spirit might fall upon his people. There in Jesus' great moment of sharing with the world, this great moment of being glorified, yes, it is there that the Spirit is released to fall upon God's people. So now any who is thirsting, any who is not satisfied can experience this living water in and through Jesus, and it will become a well of eternal life springing up within you. Do you thirst? All you need is nothing. Remember that passage in Isaiah, ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You, you don't have any money? That's fine, come. Drink, eat, and have your fill. Here it is, all you need is nothing. Do you want to want 
freely receive God's gift of life. Jesus has made this available for any and all who are thirsty. That is the first application of this text. And the second application then applies to those who already believe. Let's read it again. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. For up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. There's something more in this text that we might simply miss because we don't usually think this way. And maybe it's because we're afraid to draw this kind of attention to ourselves. We're afraid to talk about ourselves with this kind of confidence or assurance. Maybe it's because we fear the stewardship that comes from this. Well, if this is true, then man, I'm, I've got some work to do, right? Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of their heart will flow rivers of living water. Now think about what Jesus is saying here and listen again to Ezekiel 47. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the life-giving river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail, Psalm 1. Every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. See, these verses are not just a reference to what Jesus does for us. It is definitely and absolutely that. But it is also what Jesus is going to do through us. He is promising to make those who drink from him into conduits, channels from which the Spirit works to bring healing and filling to those around us. It's amazing. This is astounding. This is the mobile temple, right? Like, you think about those verses, and I know that there is more to come. So I'm not, like, getting into, like, what the new heaven and new earth looks like. I'm not talking about millennial reign or any of these things. So, you know, again, like, just set eschatology aside for a second. But the earth will be filled with the glory of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. How does God accomplish that? How is God doing that now? How is God's spirit at work in the world now? In and through his people. You know, sometimes the way that we operate is we treat Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa campus like temple. This is not the temple. This is not where God's spirit dwells. Trust me, I'm here every day, right? It's pretty dead sometimes. This is not where God's spirit resides, just waiting for us to show up. No, God has put his spirit into our hearts. And guess what? He has placed himself in every place to bring healing and to bring filling. That is where God's presence is. Now, that's not to say that God is not here with us you know, filling the praises of his people, meeting with us, instructing us, comforting us, recalibrating us, forming and shaping us into the way of Jesus. Yes, all of that is true. But church, I think we need to regain this idea of the church, of the church gathered and scattered. 
that we take God's presence with us everywhere we go. And this is God's big idea. That we, those trees who are planted by rivers of living water, whose fruit never fails, that's not for us. That's not for our comfort or just our little like, (laughs) aren't I happy and blessed? Fruit is for filling. It's for people to come and eat. It's for people to be healed. That's what this fruit is for. That's why God has placed his spirit within us. That we might be these channels and conduits through which God's life-giving presence is everywhere we go. Desiring to make that appeal to those around us. You know, Paul says this, right? God's spirit is in us, pleading with those around us, be reconciled to God. Desiring to make this same appeal through us that Jesus made on that day of the feast. If anyone is thirsty, let him come and drink. Now, maybe you're thinking, my goodness, I surely don't think my little life reflects rivers of living water. Have I done something wrong? Am I not drinking in Jesus properly? Or am I not drinking frequently enough? Many of us probably feel this in response to this teaching. You know, to me, most spiritually vital Christians are honestly barely, if at all, aware of this being so. But I think that's kind of it. There is a lack of self-awareness, and I mean this in a positive way, not in a negative way, a lack of self-awareness. So unaware of themselves because they are in tune with the Spirit of God. So unaware of what they bring of what they do because their desire is to put the life of Jesus Christ on display. That's what this is talking about. One Bible commentator, Charles Erdman, said this, I am now convinced that those Christians who are most filled with God's Holy Spirit are those who are least conscious of it. All they know is they want to serve Jesus Christ. They want to put his life on display. That's it. So in no way is the scripture implying that this has anything to do with us, our righteousness, our finding the divine spark within ourselves. It's not about us. That's the whole point. It's about Jesus. This is not something that we do. It's something that Christ has done in us, that he is doing through us. Just like Jesus says in this passage, my doctrine is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. So we would say, oh, this life-giving water is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. It comes from the Father by the work of the Son and the dwelling presence of the Spirit. We are not co-redeemers, but we are partners with God. 
We are made conduits through which God's spirit flows to the lives of those around us. Again, how else? How is God going to reach people, hungering, thirsting people who will never darken the door of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa? Not like it's about Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, right? How is God going to reach people? How does Jesus today offer to the world this life-giving, healing water? He does it through you. He does it through you, and he does it through me. In fact, the place that you are right now, your place of employment, the family that God has put you in, the opportunities that feel like, why am I here? What am I doing? What is my life really for? God has placed you there to be a channel and a conduit of living water. He has placed you there to bring healing to those around you. That's why you're there. I'll never forget years ago, I was in Santa Rosa pastoring up there. I was just having one of those really, really, you know, poopy seasons. We'll put it like that, right? Just like, why am I here? What am I doing? Why am I in pastoral ministry? I should be somewhere else. God, nothing's happening through my life. Blah, 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 blah. And I'll never forget. A friend came to me, and basically his life had just been radically turned upside down. His marriage had been just completely fallen apart. His wife had left him, and he was completely devastated. And him and I sat in a diner together, and he just poured out his heart and just wept. And I remember sitting there, you know, just ministering to him, just praying with him, encouraging him, talking about how we're going to walk together through all of this. And I just remember just sensing God's spirit saying to me, this is why you're here. You're here for this one individual to be filled. You're here for this one individual to experience healing. You're here for the person right in front of you. That's why you're here, Char. And it was such a beautiful recalibrating moment for me. Like, God, what am I thinking? Like, it's been about me. It's been about my, you know, what feels, feels good for me, what Char wants, what Char thinks is best. And all of a sudden I realized, oh, no, no, I actually have, I've, I've surrendered all that. I surrendered all that so that my life could put the life of Jesus on display. I've suspended all that in order that the life of Jesus might be manifest through me. And the interesting thing is, is that every time I've come back to that moment, I have experienced myself such filling from God and such personal healing from God, healing of my identity, healing of my purpose and meaning in the world, being filled up again with God's life-giving presence. This is how God 
does this. God's spirit works healing in the world through his people, the church. And he does that on a corporate level as we tackle big things that not one of us could do on our own. Things like, you know, things of injustice and brokenness, whether it's sex trafficking, addiction, genocide, abortion, hunger, homelessness, the poor, whatever it might be, evangelism, making peace. But then individually, as we were talking about, we live out our lives in our community, meeting and rubbing shoulders with everyday people that are thirsty, that are needing living water. Conduits and channels through which God's healing and filling flow. Now, I want to just invite you this morning to think just of one thing you can do. I remember years ago, my professor said something like this. You can't do everything. I was like, like, oh, good. Yeah, that's right. Because I'm just like, I don't know what it is, but like all of a sudden we're like, okay, I got to save the world and I'm going to figure this out. Okay. Like, so I leave church and that's what I'm going to do. No, you can't do everything. You're not meant to. But I want to ask, what is one way right now that your life can be a conduit of filling and healing to those who do not know God? What is one way that you can say, Jesus, I want to put your life on display? Remember, in weeks past, we talked about this. We talked about Jesus' posture with the woman at the well. It's unhurried, it's conversational, it's deep, it's personable, it's convicting, it's transformational. So I'm not talking about like, today, sinner's prayer, seven of them, done. Slow, consistent, faithful, just like a river. It's always there. People can come and drink. They can come in and out. What is one way right now that your life can be a conduit of that filling and healing that is found in Jesus? And remember, you're called as you are, where you are, to be who you are. God isn't calling you to do this somewhere else or sometime in the future. No, it's right now. It's wherever you are. God wants to use you. This is an amazing, amazing invitation from Jesus. We get this incredible identity with him. Not only do we get filled, that we can come and we can drink, we can have our soul thirst quenched, but that we get to partner with God in such a way that we become these conduits, these channels of living water. Church, this is the only way God's going to reach the world. We talked about this two weeks ago. People are so disillusioned by the church. The people that desperately need God, I doubt on their own, they will ever come to this campus. And the point isn't that they come to this campus. The point is that we say, God, I will be a channel and a conduit for you in this world in the place that you have called me, I will be a conduit of living water that would bring filling and healing to those around me. And so as we close this morning, can I just summarize what we're talking about here? John's gospel is the story of the eternal God who became flesh. He became touchable, tangible, flesh and blood. This is what God is calling us into, incarnational ministry. 
to become for others what Christ became for us. The gospel is meant to do the same in our life. Anyone who believes in Jesus is promised that the Spirit, God's refreshing personal presence, will come to live within them. And then as God's Spirit takes up residence in our hearts and our lives, he makes us those conduits of living water through which he can dispense healing and filling to the world around us. So his people, wherever we are, gathered or scattered, are this foretaste of that great day when healing waters will flow from the presence of the Lord and heal the nations. God wants to make that a reality today in us and through us. And so this morning as we respond in worship to God, as we respond to this invitation, as we respond at the table, man, if anyone is thirsty, if anyone is broken, if anyone is weary, come to this table. Be filled, be healed. Come and meet with Jesus. Profess Jesus. I'm thirsty. Will you give me life in your name? And he will. He will fill you. For those of us who have experienced that filling and healing in Jesus, I think this morning, this table is that opportunity for us to say, Jesus, how do you want to use my life to offer this living water to others? So recenter, reorder my life around your life-giving presence that I might be a conduit and a channel to the world. So let's do that together. Let me just pray for us. Holy Spirit, meet us now. Lord, in a true and deep heart transformative way. Lord, meet us at this table that reminds us, Lord, of your suffering with us, of your suffering for us. Lord, you thirsted in order that we might drink and be filled. Lord, your body was broken. And Peter tells us, Lord, that by your stripes, we are healed. And so, Spirit, we are asking that you would apply the work of Jesus afresh to us in a filling and a healing way as we come to the table this morning, as we meet with you. And Spirit, as we meet with you at the table, would you redirect our lives that we might become these channels, these conduits of grace that those around us might experience not just another human being that's living for themselves, so caught up in their personal identity and their own journey and story, but one who has found all of that in and through Christ, the fountain of living water. Would they experience your life-giving presence, Lord, in us and through us, we pray. Amen.